Today we begin a new series, Putting Faith into Practice. And in this message series, we will learn how to live out lessons from the book of James. James is a practical manual, perhaps the most practical single book of Christian living in the Bible. Jesus was very practical in the Sermon on the Mount, being three chapters in Matthew. But as a book, James probably even exceeds that. And James refers, there's about 20 subjects that are the same from the Sermon on the Mount and in James. But it's not primarily a doctrinal, theological letter. It's a practical letter in how to live. Who knows who wrote the book of James? No, there's more than one James in the Bible. Which one? John's brother? No. Jesus' half-brother. Jesus had four brothers and a couple of sisters. Half-brothers and sisters. So it was written by Jesus' half-brother about 15 years after Jesus' ascension. And it was the first book that's included in the New Testament, the first book written of those included. It was written about A.D. 44, somewhere between 44 and 49. Now, the letter was likely written in Jerusalem because James was the leader of the church that was founded there, founded at Pentecost and remained there until he was martyred for his faith in A.D. 62. So we begin turning your Bibles to James or Switch on your electronic items, although I've read that those things are starting to burn and start smoking. Might give some of you some life, that thing, if <laughs> ignites. <laughs> James 1 1. This letter is from James, a slave, doulos, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word slave is from the Greek word doulos, and it actually means bond servant. It's a person who was totally under the control of his master. Sometimes people were willingly um, bind themselves into servitude for a period to pay off a debt. But a doulos was born in slavery, lived his whole life in slavery, was under total control of a master. Now, it's interesting. If you were James and you had written this letter, how would you introduce yourself? As a slave of God? What would you like to say? What would you have said? You'd have said, I couldn't hear Don saying it. Half-brother of Jesus, yes, I know you that well. <laughs> but isn't that what most of us would have done? We try to get some credibility, some authority by saying who we are. And so, you know, it could have, but he doesn't say he's Jesus' half-brother or he doesn't even slightly insert another son of Mary. He identifies himself he didn't even say the head of the church in Jerusalem. He identifies himself by whom he serves. How do you identify yourself? I'm writing to the 12 tribes. And those are the 12 tribes of Israel. Jewish believers who were scattered abroad. These were, were Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, who are now living outside of Palestine. Either they had been deported to these other lands by various conquerors. Of course, now they've become Christian. But the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans displaced Jews all over the then known world. 
Or perhaps it may be that more of his audience were people who had voluntarily fled persecution and moved out of Palestine. Greetings. James wrote primarily to Jewish Christians, as I said, who fled because of persecution, but they are still suffering for their faith in foreign lands. The Jewish character of this letter is seen through four quotes, about 40 references, and four named individuals from the Old Testament. James was writing to offer confidence, hope, and strength to these people who were suffering so that they could endure these troubles. Anybody in here have any troubles? Ah, now get them up. If you're having troubles, I need to wake them up, wake you up so you'll listen. If you're having any kind of troubles, let me see them. Otherwise, I'll just let you go now. (laughs) The reason we have troubles is we live in a fallen world. As a result, we experience trials, we experience tests, temptation, and suffering. And that doesn't mean that we don't belong to God. As God's own children, we are not exempt from difficulties. We cannot escape criticism, frustration, disappointment, physical and emotional pain, disease, injury, and eventually death. We can even expect trouble because of our faith. If they persecuted me, Jesus said, they'll persecute you also. However, we can say, well, I don't have any persecution. You're only persecuted if you're living a godly life that's evident to others. Now, it's been pretty safe to behave as a Christian in the past, but I think it's becoming less and less so. And I think more and more Christians are becoming targets. And if we're Christians who stand on the moral principles of Scripture, we are going to, we are incurring, and we are going to incur greater hostility. Stand firm. God's Word is true, not this cultural's, this culture's uh, truth. Our faith is tested. And that testing Proves our faith in times of trouble. Now how we handle these trials reveals not only the strength of our faith. But it also raises the question of whether we possess genuine faith. It's a question we should continually ask. The Bible says make your calling and election sure. Our culture, in fact, the, you know, kind of the southern Christian culture said, Oh no, if you ever pray to prayer, don't ever doubt that. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says examine yourself. Take a close look to see where you stand spiritually. How do we endure these troubles? How do we persevere through trials? I'll give you several, several essentials. The first is a joyful attitude. Verse 2. Dear brothers and sisters, there's an asterisk in your Bibles because it didn't say sisters. It really originally said brothers, but the sisters are implied. When troubles come your way, 
What's the next word? Consider. Consider it an opportunity for great joy. Now, the word troubles is a Greek word. I'm, you don't have to remember these Greek words, but I'm just pointing it out because there's different ones. Pierre Asmos, some of your translations say trials. Same comes from the same word. But this says consider. That's another Greek word. Hegeomai. And consider is an imperative. You remember what that means from, what was that, high school English, I guess? An imperative is instruction. It's a directive. It's a command, you could say. Now, the reason it's given as a command is because you're not likely to do it otherwise. Consider an opportunity for joy because joy isn't a natural human response to trouble, is it? And we're not just directed to behave joyful, to act joyful, to pretend we're joyful. When what we really think is anything but joyful, we're called and directed to be genuinely joyful. That's a change of thinking. That's some transformation. And it says that troubles are an opportunity for joy. So if they're an opportunity for joy... It means that something's required on your part. It isn't automatic. Experiencing joy in trouble is a matter of our will. It's a decision we make to be controlled by our faith instead of our what? Feelings. That may be the most countercultural statement I make today. Our culture elevates feelings above thinking. Our, el- our culture elevates personal desires among God's directive. I mean, let's be honest about our culture. Our culture is severing. Can you tell that? And, and the, the, the separation is being encouraged. As people are encouraged to demand what they want. Let me tell you this. There's not a big enough pot for everybody to get what they want. Because scripture commands it. It's within our ability. With the spirit's help. To determine that a difficult situation. That one you're in right now. Offers an opportunity, not only for joy, for great joy. Yet the one that you're in right now. Employment trouble, financial trouble, relational trouble, marital trouble, trouble with kids, trouble in the office. That one provides an opportunity. Do you believe that? Now the one you're taught, that bad one. The one you're going to have to face again tomorrow morning. That one provides an opportunity for joy. If you consider it an opportunity for joy. Changing the way you think. When we approach our testings. 
with hopeful anticipation and joy. We come to realize that they are not punishments from an uncaring God. That we're not victims. Instead, we recognize that these painful situations, the ones that you're in right now, or the one that you will be meeting next week, enable us to know and trust God in a deeper way if we desire to learn spiritual truths from difficult lessons. Is it possible? We discover that we can experience joy as we draw closer to the Lord who is the source of all our joy. Becoming more sensitive to, more dependent on His presence. Because you see, when you're in trouble... No, let me ask it this way. As a question. When you're in trouble, do you pray more? How many of you pray more when you're in trouble? Then would you say that's a healthier place for you to be spiritually? Than in a place where everything's going well? As our prayer life increases, as our interest in our study in the Word improves and and continues and grows our joy increases as we gain greater intimacy with God joy won't come from this world you might have some happiness joy comes from God how much time are you spending with him so let me ask again Do you have troubles? What is your attitude toward them? You know, I'm not in the office much anymore. I'm here on Mondays for meetings. And then I study away from here all week. My wife's away in the mountains on women's retreat this weekend. So I wanted to be finished with my studying before she left. So I worked hard. I slaved at it. I worked long hours without even a break. And I had drafted all of my message. I said, well, Leanne's coming home. I'll be able to spend some time with her before she heads to the mountains. And my computer locked up. Not only did it lock up, it erased everything I had done. Now... Not only was I disappointed that I was going to be working all night, but I didn't even have the heart anymore to start again. You ever experienced that? So I called David. I have deadlines. These outlines are one deadline. You know, I send a manuscript that they then translate into Spanish and all that. I said, David, I'm not going to make any deadlines. I've lost everything. He said, well, you have a good illustration for Sunday sermon.
But he was right. I wanted to be mad, you know. I mean, there wasn't anybody to take it out on. I could kick Mr. Mac down the driveway. But, but he was right. We have to take our very frustrations, disappointments, trials, tests, pain, suffering, and say, this is my opportunity for joy. So that this trial becomes an opportunity for joy instead of an unwelcome intruder in our lives. Persevering through trials requires also an understanding mind. Verse 3. For you know, that's the key there, the word. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a what? A chance to grow, which means it also has a chance not to grow. So the fact that you're enduring hardship, suffering, trial, disease, doesn't mean you're growing. It means you have an opportunity to grow, depending on your attitude, depending on what you know about it. Testing, the word that was translated testing, dokimion, is a different word from the word that was translated trouble or trial. Pierasmos. Again, you don't have to know those except I want you to understand there are different words that are used at different points in this passage. But both of these communicate the idea of enduring difficulty or pressure to prove whether something's genuine. That's the meaning of the words. They're neither positive nor negative. They don't mean you're tempted to sin. They might just be you're pressed to do what's right. You see what I'm saying? They're they're morally neutral. But they are saying you're under pressure. There's a trial. There's a test. There's some suffering. The word no, gnosko, conveys the idea not of, of intellectual awareness. Not of mere acknowledgement of something. This isn't factual awareness or even acceptance. It's something that, that, that you know in the sense that it's in you. And often it comes from personal experience. When we suffer, but we persist in trusting God... Knowing he will help us withstand the difficulties. We develop a stronger ability to trust him in even more threatening, painful situations. Say, well, uh, that's threatening to me. That's right. That's right. You're hearing accurately. Now, we can give up. We can stop trusting God. We can indulge self-pity. We can become a victim. We can become resentful toward God. And if we do those things, our endurance will not grow. And in fact, if we reflect on it, we might start doubting the reliability of God. Or... The reality of our own faith. 
How you respond is about you. Our faith can't be tested and strengthened in time of ease and comfort. Do you believe that? Those of you who everything's going well, health is good, salary's great, your wife never asks you to take out the trash, all those things. Well, she shouldn't even have to ask you, should she? You ladies like that, don't you? It's your responsibility too. Don't you live in this house? You won't grow in times of ease and comfort. I don't believe it's possible to grow in times of ease and comfort. You may have something you call faith, but until it's tested, you don't even know if it's genuine. It might be mere acknowledgement of the facts of Jesus, which isn't the same as being born again. Knowing is being born again. It's being, not only it's you believing, it's God believing in you and you being consumed by the truth that's now undeniable. Troubles and difficulties show us the state of our faith. Now, here's a question Are you willing to be tested to prove your faith? Are you? This, take, this takes some courage, doesn't it? Are you willing to be tested to prove your faith? Prove it to God, but mostly prove it to you. Persevering through trials requires a submissive will. Verse 4. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Now, some of y'all are going, well, we never get perfect. Well, that's not the point of this word. Perfect is from teleos, similar to a word I told you all about two weeks ago. Doesn't mean moral or spiritual perfection or sinlessness. Rather, it refers to being fully developed, to being finished. You see what I'm saying? You remember that word a few weeks ago? What was it? To telestai. That meant it is finished. But the word finished is the same Greek word. It's complete. It's whole. It's developed fully. But a better translation in this use would be mature. Referring to spiritual maturity, which is Christ-likeness. And that's the goal of endurance and perseverance. The word complete there just carries with it the idea of being whole, entire. God cannot grow and strengthen our faith without our willingness to experience and endure trials. If you resist, if you resent, if you fall into self-pity, you won't grow. You're going to recede. But if you say, I'm going to pass through this trial and I'm just going to cling closely to Christ, you will grow in your endurance, in your ability to persevere. 
God does not promise to prevent our pain. Did y'all hear that? God does not promise. You already heard the baby out there crying. He was echoing me. See there? God does not promise to prevent our pain. In fact, on the other hand, he promises pain. In this world, you'll have trouble. And I know some of you here have heard teaching that says, Oh no, God takes away all disease. all." And I know the verse in Isaiah, By his stripes we're healed, but we're not healed of all physical, mental diseases that end up leading to our death. Otherwise, there'd be some thousand-year-old people walking around. God doesn't promise you that. He does promise to remain with you through your trials. Romans 8, 38, 39. Hebrews 13, 5. And he promises that even in that suffering, he will prevent you suffering spiritual harm, degradation of your faith. When we learn to rejoice in our trials and to understand that our Heavenly Father uses them not to harm us, but to strengthen, to mature, to perfect us, then we're motivated to embrace them as beneficial. Will you do that? I'm talking about what you're suffering right now. Will you embrace it? You know, when David said that to me, I thought, and I said, okay, God, what are you teaching me here? Do we submit to God's plan and purpose by asking, what does God want me to learn from this? Do you pray that? Every problem that befalls you, This is an appropriate prayer for every one of those problems. What does God want me to learn from this? Persevering through trials requires a believing heart. If you need wisdom about this suffering, trial and testing, ask our generous God and He will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. See, when we're facing troubles, the one that you're facing right now, we need God's wisdom. We need God's perspective on our pain to understand why we are suffering, to gain insight into how we can be helped by this and how we should respond. Now, Who is the cause of most of your suffering? Point. Oh, you pointed at her. You come up here. I'll finish the other message with you, the rest of the message with you. Nope, she's not. Do you know who the cause of most of your problems are? Truly? Listen, I said this earlier, but I'm going to say this again. Your response to every situation, did I say there are any exceptions? Your response to every situation 
is about you. Do you believe that? But he, but she, uh, no, no, no. Your response is about you and nobody else. I'm usually the cause of my own suffering. Now, the MacBook was that on that one instance. But my response was about me. But see, the problem is, we may even know this, but we can't or we won't see it. You have marital troubles? Your response is because of who? Not your spouse? Me. Me. I need God to show me myself. I need God to reveal to me my role in my predicament. This verse tells us to ask God when we need understanding to help us persist. So sometimes we don't receive an answer or an explanation about our troubles. We always receive Him. Because see, the explanation really is of little help. Have you noticed that? Most of the time when you have troubles, discovering the cause of it is often not even helpful. It's knowing he's in it with you. And if we continue in him, we experience peace. Now, it's peace beyond understanding. When we ask God for wisdom, he won't scold us. He will not rebuke you for asking. Even if we've been reluctant or unwilling to ask. Even when we're the cause of the troubles, God doesn't scold us. See, God's trying to grow us. So lecturing you about everything you did wrong isn't helping you grow. He's bringing you forward. But he does expect our request to be based on genuine trust. In his character, his purpose, his promises. Verse 6. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Not in yourself. Not in your checking account. Not in your resources. Not in your friends. Not in your status. Do not waver. For a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world. Some translations say double-minded. Another translation I read that I like is They can't make up their minds. And they're unstable in everything they do. 
If you're divided in your loyalty to God, if you're torn between relying on your own resources, your own wits, your bank account, or if you're seeking the world's solutions for your troubles, you can't expect God to answer your prayers for wisdom. Or for anything else for that matter. Because you see, a request that doesn't believe God's word, that, that re- re- rejects God's word being authoritative over their lives, that doesn't believe in his promises, that doubts his abilities or his trustworthiness, all those dishonor God. Why would he answer? If you have a coworker and that guy's been criticizing everything you've produced, and then he asks you for help, what would you say? Why, why do you want any help from me? When do you seek God's help? Is it only when you're out of resources? When do you seek God's help? Is it only when you're out of resources? Thank God for showing us sometimes that. But if so, then you're double-minded, unstable in all your ways and shouldn't expect anything from God. That's what the passage says. Persevering through trials also requires a humble spirit. Verse 9. Believers who are poor have something to boast about for God has honored them. You know, people, particularly in our culture, and this includes, includes professing Christians, have a tendency to trust in material possessions. So James pointed out the dangers of wealth. It was true in his day, it's true today. Now, the, his audience, remember, not only was us, but in particular, primarily, first, it was for persecuted Jewish believers who were economically poor, who had either had their possessions confiscated from them or they fled and left them as they were being persecuted. But despite their poverty, these believers could have pride in being chosen to be God's children and in receiving countless invaluable spiritual blessings. A Christian who is deprived in this life can accept temporary poverty. Because what awaits is future divine inheritance that is both eternal and secure. You see what's happening in our culture? There's a, as there's a lessening of faith. As there is a decrease of understanding what it is to live in Christ. There's a greater demand that I need mine. I should get mine. I should have what I want. And if you have it, I should get it from you. There's nothing spiritual about that. Now, I'm not saying it's not good to seek to advance yourself. Nothing in Scripture is wrong there. But for me to resent that you have anything more than me, I don't understand what I have in Christ Jesus. 
Scriptures clearly says, quit comparing yourselves. But see, this, for political ends, our politicians are, are separating people and, and making them jealous of each other and saying, he's the blame. You're not the blame. He's the blame. That leads nowhere but destruction, culturally and spiritually. You, you'd be driven to have more stuff. Will bring disaster into your life. Pride pushes God away. Humility draws him near. A wealthy believer, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with wealth, though I want to see how much of it y'all give away, but I'm not saying there's anything wrong with wealth. But a wealthy believer should rejoice when trials come because it brings awareness and humility. Because trials teach the temporary, transient nature of possessions. And trials reveal the inability of stuff to resolve real problems or to provide anything of real spiritual importance. Do you know that? James, we continue in James at verse 10. They, the rich, will fade away like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower droops and falls and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. The flowers, the wildflowers in Israel's fields had a brief life. They would flourish in February... But then they would dry up and die in May. Our lives are the same. Our lives are brief. This brief. The scripture calls it a hand breadth, which is the width of a hand. It says that our life is a vapor. And wealth can't change that fact. I've lived a long time. 58 years, I think, is a long time. I've lived long enough to see... On television, the red hot mama with the, the bombshell. Now is the mother, and she has less gunpowder. <laughs> and not only that, I've seen them become the mother, and now they've advanced to be what? The grandmother. No pop at all. Now, some of them are trying to. They use this wealth. Man, some of them got their faces pinned back so far their ears touch in the back. <laughs> For what? It's, it's, it's futile. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying, you know, I took a shower this morning. I did something with this. But look at it. I mean, look at this. If I'm chasing youth, I'm not going to catch it. I mean, I was driving, I think it's in Atlanta, toward Atlanta, and there was this billboard that said, you can pay, you can get plugs for a dollar a plug. I thought, I need to take up a collection. I need a thousand of them. And some of y'all, Lord, a thousand wouldn't even, 
I mean, look at this head. But do we realize how ridiculous it is to cling to youth? How anti-God it is. I'm not saying don't do some exercise. I'm not saying that. But some of us live for this stuff, you know. And in the end, it's cruel and it's dehumanizing and it's devaluing. You know... People that are bald in the front are thinkers. People that are bald in the back are lovers. People that are bald all over, all over think they're lovers. In suffering and trials, that's a healthy place for us. You know that? We are all the same. You know, I, there's, our staff is big enough now. I don't, I don't do a lot of the pastoral care today, and others do. But in the early years, I did most of it, much of it. So I've spent a lot of hours in the room with dying people. And you know what? Laying in that same bed with that white gown, you couldn't tell what was in their bank accounts. It was the equalizer. They all looked alike. Because you know what? In times of trial and suffering, rich and poor are equally dependent on God. And we're all headed there. So it's best to go ahead and practice trusting God. For you, what do you evaluate your life on? Do you evaluate your life based on your financial status? How new your car is, the size of your house. Does your neighborhood have those buttons where nobody like me can get in? Or relationship to God? Financial status or relationship to God? Now if I took a poll, virtually everyone would say relationship with God. Well then how much time do you spend? Developing it. You know, let me be honest, if y'all allow me. Most people today, and that includes many of you, come to church once a month or so. Boy, if we approach our, our work the way we approach our spiritual life, all of us would get pink slipped. And we wonder why we have no peace in the hour of suffering. Because you know what? You've had to practice the presence of God to have peace in the hour of suffering. And I I don't know why we, that's what this passage is saying. Like those flowers, it's all going to droop and die. So why aren't you getting ready to know the peace of God in the moment of pain? There is a reward for perseverance. Verse 12. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. This one says, but there's really only one word in Greek there. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love Him. This blessing is more than the happiness of comfort, ease, or entertainment. 
I'm not saying all entertainment or even a good vacation is wrong. I'm not saying that. But is that the, the focus of our lives? Blessed carries the idea of a profound inner joy, a contentment that comes only from Christ. And God gives to those who faithfully and patiently endure and conquer trials with His help. This crown of life isn't referring to a prize that someone gets that no one else does. The crown of life is a reference to a laurel wreath that is put on the head of the victorious athlete. It's not a royal crown of royalty. But what it represents is eternal life. And it means you live a life of perseverance. You're going to be rewarded with eternal life. But... Those that receive that crown, as this clearly says, look at it. The crown of life that God has promised to those who love Him. So who perseveres? The lover of God. Who gets the crown of eternal life? The lover of God. Loving God is a biblical definition of faith. So if you need a mirror, say, does my life look like I'm a lover of God or a lover of this world or a lover of myself? You need to look long and hard at that, the answer to that question. Read all through 1 John. It points that out. So do you love God? But then based on that, I'm not talking about lip service. I'm talking about life service. Does it show? If I say I love my wife and it doesn't show in any way, I don't take out that trash. I don't care about her feelings. She's going to say, you're not displaying anything. Do you love God in a practical, tangible way that anyone can see? Do you persevere through trials? Have you received that crown of life? You know what? Let me tell you. Getting that crown of life... There is no other prize comparable in this world. No car, no house, no home, no position, no salary. You can receive the crown of life. He said, I don't know how. Quit looking back where you made a decision when you were eight, eight years old. These are current practical questions for now. So I'm confused. There'll be counselors here at the front. And they'll be at the care connection room. Let me encourage you. As we study this series, stay in it. If you need a Bible, buy a Bible. If you've never read it, start this week. We've given you this. The outline opens up. You may not know that. And we're, gonna, we're just giving you more information. Here's a whole discussion guide. You can do this yourself. You can do it with one friend, with your spouse. You can form a group or you can get in a small group that, that's surveying it. But we're going to stay in this book and we're going to dig it out and try to learn these lessons. It also has daily Bible study readings. If you're not already using Hearing Through God, Hearing God or Jesus Calling, which we're still selling in the bookstore. And the soul training for each week. I hope that you're doing these soul trainings to stimulate some growth. The soul training for this week 
is identify a challenge or trial you are currently facing and name one thing God is teaching you or shaping in you as a result of that trial. God, teach us. Help us not be afraid of suffering, but help us to seek to know you even though it means that difficulty and suffering are part of that learning process. In your blessed son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming.